And good morning, church family. Uh, just before I begin my message, I have a, another message to relay to you from Joyce Murphy. Some of you know that last Sunday uh, she got a flat tire out in the church parking lot, and she mentioned that there were half a dozen men rushing out there to take care of her uh, during the, the services on Sunday morning. So she was very grateful for that. Asked me to relay her gratitude. All right, and now let's turn to the task at hand. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the fundamental Christian conviction <clears throat> is that Jesus is Lord. That means he is the king. He is the sovereign. And today's passage explains why that is. So let's turn there together now. We're in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 983. I'll begin this morning in a word of prayer, and then we'll consider the text together. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we do thank you once again for allowing us to gather as a church family. Lord, thank you for the fellowship that we enjoy with one another. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you. And now, Lord, to be able to study your word, Lord, might you use today's text to expand our idea of who your son is. Lord, help us to see him in all of his glory. Pray that we would be changed by our experience with your word today. And then, Lord, I also pray for all of those who are away from us right now due to sickness and travel. Pray for Pastor Scott and his wife as they begin to make their way back to Michigan. Pray for the others, Lord, as they watch from a distance today. Might they be blessed through their interaction with our church via the live stream. Lord, pray your blessing on everyone who will come under the teaching of your word today. Lord, might you be glorified in this hour and in our lives. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So today's text is about the lordship of Jesus Christ, and it begins with this most incredible statement. Paul writes this, verse 15. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, the first chapter of our Bibles tell us that all people are made in the image of God, which means that all of us bear a resemblance to our Creator that is not shared by the rest of creation. We have spiritual and moral and intellectual capacities that allow us to commune with God in a way that no other creature can. And yet, none of us have ever fully lived up to our reality. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means we have all failed to image God as we ought. My own pastor uses this illustration. He says, imagine finding a vase in the aftermath of a house fire. And as you look at that vase, you can look carefully and see it must have been very beautiful when it was made. But today it is marred. It is covered in ash. He says, Human nature is the same way. 
You look at the human person and you can see the beauty of God's design there. The image of God is still present, but it's been marred by the reality of our sins. And so we do not live up to our purpose today. But friends, Christ is a different story. Christ is the sinless Son of God, come to earth in human flesh. Christ is the perfect image bearer of God. He is all that we were ever meant to be and all that we could be if we were fully devoted to him. And even more than that, as the eternal son of God, Christ is the perfect representation of God to us. And so Jesus said in John 12, 45, he who has seen me has seen the one who sent me. And in John 14, 9, Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And in Hebrews 1, 3, the author says, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his nature. See, every aspect of God is perfectly represented to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ is everything that God is and everything that we should be is the image of the invisible God. But then you notice the next description of Christ. He is also the firstborn of all creation. Now, depending on context, the word firstborn can be taken in one of two senses. First, it can mean that he was the first to be born, as in the oldest child in a household. But it can also take on a more figurative meaning, of being the highest in rank. We find this, for example, in Psalm 89, verse 27. There God speaks of King David, and he says this, I will make David the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So David was actually the youngest child in his family, and he was the second king of Israel, but God singled David out and said, I will make him the firstborn. And then he explains that to mean, I will make him the highest of all the kings of the earth. So the word firstborn can have one of these two senses. Context determines which is correct. In today's text, it is the latter interpretation that is correct. Christ is the firstborn of all creation in the sense of being above all creation. He is the Lord of creation. So he is the perfect image of God and he is above all the created order. He's the king, the potentate. And verse 16 explains why. It says, "For by him or through him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. Proverbs chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, our Lord says this, When God established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his commands, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. I was daily his delight. 
So you see, God the Father decreed that the universe should be made. But it was God the Son who executed that decree. It is by him or through him that the universe came into being. That means all things, visible and invisible, derive from the hands of God the Son. And you'll notice things weren't just created through him, but they were made for him. That's the end of verse 16. See, all that is not God was made for God. It was made for his pleasure in Christ. And it was made to fulfill his purposes in Christ. Chief among them being the promotion of his own glory. Friends, as we ponder the vastness of our universe, we look at its size, its wonder, when we're tempted to ask the question, why would God have made it so massive? Because after all, for most of human history, we haven't even known that it all existed, right? Most of human history, all that, that humans could see was what the night sky revealed. But we know now the universe is so much more vast. Why would God have made it so enormous? And we know that we could never travel to those places. They're too far away. Why did God make it all? Well, the answer is, it's not there for us. It's there for him. God made it for his pleasure to declare his glory. And it is out there doing exactly what God in Christ wants it to do. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Sometimes we may wonder, why did God make so many millions of angels? After all, God is all-powerful. He doesn't need helpers. And angels are spirit beings, so we can't see them. So why did he make them? Why so many? Well, again, they're not there for our sakes. They're there for God's sake. God made them for his pleasure and for his purposes. And when we ask, why did God make us? The answer is the same. God made us in Christ for his pleasure and for his glory. You see, friends, we are not the center of the universe. God is. He is the center of it. He is the focal point of it. It was all made by God in Christ. It was all made for God in Christ. It exists for the promotion of his glory. All things made by him and for him, the text says. And then verse 17, it says, He is before all things, speaking of his preexistence. And then in him, all things hold together. So there is no inherent power in this universe holding all of the elements in place. No, it is the supernatural power of God that binds this universe together. Let me ask you all to just rest in silence for one moment. That breath you just breathed, that was enabled by the power of God. And that beating you feel in your chest right now, that beating is by the power of God. 
There is a divine power that permeates this universe. It holds the atoms together and it blows the air into your lungs and it shoots the electricity through your heart to keep it beating. It is God holding all of this together. Every moment of our lives is by his pleasure and for his purposes. He is Lord of creation, my friends. And in verses 18 through 20, the Apostle Paul goes even deeper. It says, he is also the head of the body, the church. What is the church? Well, it is that company of people who have been born again by the supernatural power of God. Also called the new humanity or the new creation. So that Jesus Christ is Lord of both creation and also new creation. Lord of the universe and Lord of his church. Paul goes on. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. And this gets to the very heart of Christ's incarnation. His coming to earth in human flesh. See, the chief reason why God the Son took on a human nature and came to dwell among us is so that he could experience death. See, God cannot die by definition. Only we can die. So the eternal Son of God took upon himself a human nature so that he could come, dwell on earth with us, and experience death for us. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That means the wages of sin is judgment and hell. You see, God loves us very much. Loves us so much that he is not willing to see any of us perish. And so God made a provision for us through Christ. He determined that he himself would bear his own judgments for our sins. That he would do so by robing his eternal son in flesh, sending him into the earth to live a sinless life, something none of us ever did. And then to bear the full weight of sin's judgments on his shoulders instead of on ours. He sent his son to die for our sakes. You know, the scriptures record the exact moment when our sins were atoned for by Christ tells us that three hours into his ordeal on the cross, a dark cloud rolled over the crucifixion scene. This was the sign that the judgments of God were rolling in. And as the wrath of God was poured out on Christ, our Lord shouted, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it wasn't a statement of confusion. It was a statement of anguish as he experienced the reality of hell in our place. Then the scriptures say he let out another loud cry. And then finally his body slumped and his spirit departed. The eternal son of God died. He did it for us. He experienced judgment and wrath so that we could live eternally, slate cleaned. God did that for us. Christ, the Son of God, did that for us. Voluntarily, 
as an act of love. But friends, on the third day, our Lord Jesus rose from that grave. 1 Corinthians 15 says, He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And Paul adds, most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, seek them out if you want to hear their testimonies. Paul says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles again. Then last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Christ rose from the grave. And his resurrection, my friends, is the guarantee of the church's future resurrection. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And then Paul says this later on, Behold, I tell you a mystery. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. And then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? See, this is what God has done for us in Christ. Christ has become for us the firstborn from the dead. He is the one who died and rose again and by whose resurrection guaranteed a future resurrection for all of his saints. And Christ has done this, becoming both Lord of the universe and Lord of the church, so that, verse 18, in all things he might be preeminent. That he might have the first place Everywhere, in all things, at all times. Then verses 19 and 20, we find Paul's concluding summary. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So this is our Lord Jesus Christ, the one in whom dwells all the fullness of God. The one in whom all of God was in whom all of God was pleased to dwell and then through him to make atonement for our sins on the cross, making peace by his own blood. Now friends, what an exalted picture of Christ these verses give us. Now, why would Paul want to include such an exalted portrait of Christ here at the beginning of this letter to the Colossian church? Well, here's why, my friends. It's because this church was being tempted with the idea that Christ was insufficient. You remember the situation in Colossae? Okay, here we have this, this fledgling little church. It's, it's filled with new believers, and they find themselves surrounded by a highly pluralistic culture. And there were advocates of competing systems of thought from their culture who were bearing down on this little church. 
And they were saying to this church, look, if you guys want to embrace the gospel of Christ, call yourselves Christians and all that, that's fine. We have no problem with that. But you also have to know that's not enough. Christ isn't enough. If you want to be really sure that you have a a right relationship with God, you need to adopt some of our thoughts as well. You need to adopt some of our worship practices, like the worship of angels. You need to adopt some of our traditions like practicing asceticism, particularly following certain dietary restrictions. And they said, you need to follow some of our philosophies. Until you have done these things, you can have no confidence that you are right with God, and surely you will not have the respect of your community either. So this church was feeling the pressure. They were wondering... Did we get it wrong? I mean, when this church was established, I mean, it was established as a monument to the all-sufficiency of Christ. And they had turned from their idols, and they had declared their allegiance to Christ. They believed in Him alone for their salvation. They had been saved by God, by His grace, through their faith in Christ. But that earlier commitment was beginning to wane. Now they're just not sure They've never experienced these kinds of intellectual challenges to their faith before. So is Christ enough or or is he not? Should they continue on on this Christocentric path that they've begun upon? Or do they need to start importing some of the systems of thought from the world around them? Does Christ need to be supplemented with other things? See, this was the crisis they were facing. No, this is the crisis that the church in the West is also facing. We find ourselves in virtually the same situation, do we not? Church of Christ is scattered about in local assemblies all over the Western world. But we are all in these highly pluralistic environments. There are competing systems of thought all around us. And with increasingly loud voices we are hearing advocates of these other systems saying, you want to call yourselves Christians, that's great, but understand, you've got to make some modifications. You need to subtract from some of, what you have, some of the gospel you've received and import in our way of thinking. You need to reinterpret the gospel or add to the gospel. You need to do something to accommodate what we are teaching today. Otherwise, you are either ignorant or morally reprehensible or both. The church of Christ in the West today feels that pressure. Many churches are falling under the weight of that pressure. So why did Paul write these words about Christ in the opening of this letter? Well, it was to remind us of who it is that we had pledged our allegiance to at the start. When we first came to Christ in faith, there was no question in our minds, was there? We knew that Christ was everything that we needed. His righteousness, his atonement for sin, his wisdom, all of it was a perfect match for what we needed. And so we jettisoned everything else, came to him alone seeking salvation, and he granted it to us. He gave us the new birth. We experienced all of the joys of new life in Christ. We began to worship him 
in spirit and in truth. But maybe things are a little different now. Maybe you've been a Christian for a little while. Maybe you're starting to feel some of the pressure on your shoulders from the world around you. And you're wondering, have I made the right choice? Or do I need to start accommodating some of these other systems of thought? I need to, to moderate my commitment to Christ in light of these other things. We're all kind of in the, the same boat today. So Paul writes this for us just to remind us who Christ is. He says to each one of us, to the, to the church in Colossae in ancient times, to the Western church of today, don't you forget who this one is that you have come to. He is Lord of creation. He is Lord of the church in all things. He will have the preeminence. One day, every knee is going to bow to him in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So let us do so today, joyfully and willingly and with hearts that have been changed by him. Friends, anytime we find ourselves in a situation where we wonder whether Christ is enough, what we really need is just the reminder of what we came to at the start. He is Lord. Friends, this is the fundamental Christian confession. He is Lord over all things. Lord over this universe. He is Lord of his church. Let us never be shaken from that commitment. See, my friends, all that was necessary to reconcile to you, you to God was accomplished by Christ. All of it. It was all done by Him. Nothing can be added to the work of Christ. Nothing can be taken away from the work of Christ. Furthermore, all that is necessary for you to live a fruitful Christian life is wrapped up in His teachings which is to say it's all wrapped up within the written word that you have in your lap. It all comes from him. It's all his wisdom, whether it's the words of the Old Testament prophets or the New Testament apostles. It is the word of Christ. He's given you everything you need right there. No additions needed. No subtractions would be useful. It's all right there exactly as we need it. Friends, when we are struggling with times of uncertainty, what we need is not something besides Christ, but we need more of Christ. When we're struggling, what we need is more knowledge of Him. We need more reminders of all that He has become for us. What we need is more wisdom from Christ to navigate the complexities of this world. We need to experience more of his grace and his love. We need to learn how to pray along with that old Dutch minister, William Tielnik. Listen to his prayer. Lord, would you arouse in me warmth of love and a flame of zealous affection so that I might be holy and completely consumed by your love and might lose myself entirely in your affections. Lord, let me possess your love above the sun, the moon, and the stars, 
above the earth and all that it contains. May you be more precious to my soul, Lord, than all my dearest friends, than all my possessions, than all my pleasures, than my own joy, comfort, peace, and life. For you, O Lord, are better than all that is, better than life itself. If only I have you, O Lord, my life will be sweet. But without you, my life is no better than an accursed death and everlasting torment. Friends, let that be our prayer. Lord, I am struggling right now, so will you please give me more of you? Fill my mind with your truths and fill my soul with an awareness of your affection for me and might it return back as affection for you. Give me more of you, God, so that I can see through this time I'm living in. My friends, Jesus is Lord. Let him be Lord of your life. Let us bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us, and I pray that you would help us to see your Son just as he is. Help us to see him in all of his glory as Lord of creation and Lord of the church, as firstborn of all creation, as firstborn of the new, the new creation. Help us, Lord, in these very strange and uncertain times when we feel battered about by every wind of teaching. Lord, help us to keep ourselves anchored to your Son, to his words. Might it help us to stabilize in the midst of these turbulent seas. Lord, if there is anyone here who has not yet come to know you with saving faith, Might you reach down into their hearts. Might you soften those hearts to be receptive to you. Lord, might they see that all that they need can be met by you. Need for forgiveness, for life and joy. Lord, do that work today. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.